Titus chapter 3. We're still on the subject. It's a good thing for God's people to uphold biblical standards when relating to others. The Bible is absolutely filled with teaching concerning biblical standards in relating to other people. Whatever is natural and normal that we would think of being natural and normal usually is contrary to what the Word of God teaches. I hope you understand that. I've said it before and I say it again. It's contrary to what you would normally hear. Now, Paul the Apostle had been talking to Titus and in the second chapter of Titus, he ends up down there talking about a portion that we just studied just recently. It said, The grace of God to bring us salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of, our, of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Now, Titus, he said, when you're preaching, the things that I just now told you, preach these things with all authority and don't let any man despise or ignore what you're saying. If they, you don't get their attention when you say it, say it to them again. If you don't get their attention then, say it to them again. Until they finally begin to realize that you're serious about this thing. Now he goes on, he says, that's what you should preach. And he goes on teaching some more. And I want you to know that this is what's helpful for a Christian is if they'll take these chapters of Titus and go word for word through it and just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you from the, the words themselves. We're going to do a little bit of that tonight, just kind of a word study through the third chapter of Titus to find out the good things. There's three times where he talks about good works in this one chapter. First of all, he says, put them in mind. He's talking about Christians now. Bring this to their mind. Remind them. Let them know this, what? To be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Well, now what's a magistrate? A judge? Those that are in the law enforcement field? But it says right in the Bible to obey the magistrates, obey those that are in authority. Now, again, what's the balance to this? God's law supersedes man's law. Now, I don't see any place where the scriptures or God's laws say that we can go 120 miles an hour until the rapture or until the church is called away. Then we can go as fast as we want it. In the meantime, we're to be under the laws of the land. Not just that, but every other law that's established for other people's good. Now, when the time comes that they say we can't witness anymore, how many of you are going to quit witnessing? You know that if this law does get passed and we do witness, they can file suit against us and we might go to jail and might lose everything we own. How many of you are going to be willing to let that happen? The, the day may come when we'll have to say, Lord, do you want us to live in this country or is there another country where we can have our freedoms back? You know, every nation that's thrown the Jews out of their country have gone down in defeat in the world. They've gone right down to nothing. Every nation in history that's gotten rid of the Jews, thrown them out. Can you imagine what would happen to this country if Christians in mass would begin to move out of this country? The only thing that's holding back the total judgment of God on this nation, I believe with all my heart right now, are believers that are trying to cry out to God for revival and a turnaround in our nation. Paul says here to Titus that we're to be subject to, we're supposed to be good citizens, for the sake of our government, 
and to obey the magistrates and be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man. Have you ever underlined that one and put it on your refrigerator? To speak evil of no man. I have been in the ministry long enough to know that down through the years there have been many, many people who have left churches because there are those in the church that go around and backbite, gossip, criticize, talk about them. I know a lot of pastors that have been driven out of churches from that very thing, people speaking evil of someone else. You know, rather than speak evil of someone, we ought to be praying for them. Now, Paul, pretty soon we'll get to the place to tell you why we shouldn't do this. Very interesting here. He says, don't speak evil of any man. That's gossip. God hates gossip. God hates a tongue that bears tales, carries tales about other people. To be no brawler, but gentle. I want to tell you something. That was very difficult for me when I first became a Christian because I had to change my whole lifestyle. I had to fight to survive in the neighborhood I came from. And I've already told you that after I became a Christian, the Lord had to deal with me time and time again because I would lose my temper, fly off the handle, and deck someone. And then as soon as I did it, the Spirit of God just convicted me horribly, and I'd have to go back, and the hardest thing in the world is to go back and ask them, will they please forgive me? But you know there are many people who call themselves Christians today who still have violent temper, still will want to fight at the drop of a hat, get angry at the drop of a hat. Have you ever noticed lately the increase in anger in people when you're driving? I mean, girls, ladies today will curse and shake their fists and make all kinds of signs and symbols to people. I watch them when I drive them down the road. I see them get mad at somebody. They'll do this over and over again. Scream blasphemous words out of there. That didn't used to happen. I can remember when I was younger, you didn't hear girls very often ever swear. But it's just becoming more and more prevalent today. Ready for a fight at the drop of a hat. Proverbs says, a soft answer turneth away wrath. So when you and I are approached with people who are violent, want to just do nothing but get into a brawl with you, the scripture says we're to be gentle. Be very loving to them. I still remember years ago when I went into a Christian, quote, Christian ministry, and a lady knew that I had just developed my tapes, presented my tapes on marriage, divorce, and remarriage just less than 12 years ago or so. She came up behind that desk and came around that desk, this sweet Christian, quote, unquote, secretary, came up within three inches of my face, screaming, her face just red and her eyes puffed, you know, bulged out at me, screaming at me at this, this garbage that I had written and on and on and on went on. And just, I just stood there quietly and I said, I'm sorry if I have offended you, but if the word offends you, you'll just have to bear with that. I said, I didn't say that because of you. I didn't even want to write the book. She started to flare again, and I just very quietly answered her again and said, I love you, and I have no reason to argue with you whatsoever, but if it's truth, then we all have to answer for it. If it's not truth, then I'll have to answer for it. There's no reason for you to get violent with me about it. And that soft answer, before long, she quieted down, sat down behind the desk, and, well, I'm sorry, I got so upset, blah, 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 blah. Paul says we're not to be brawlers. First tendency is to flare back when somebody flares at us. And I want to tell you something. I'm human enough. I once in a while feel that little thing inside of me. And I say, in the name of Jesus, you won't. That's the way it used to be, but it's not going to be that way anymore. 
And the Lord says that you and I should have control in that area. But we're to be examples by not being a brawler, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Now, can someone tell me what's the difference between meekness and weakness? Weakness is where you just cave into everything. Meekness. It's having the ability to do something about it, but not doing something about it. It would be like me walking up to a professional boxer and pulling back my fist and saying one more word out of you and I'll smash you like a bug and for him to say, look, let's not worry about it. Come on, let me go get you. Let's go have dinner together, you know. That's meekness. One, you know, really a professional boxer is supposed to, the real professional boxers have to register their hands as lethal weapons. If they wanted to haul off and hit me, I'd probably fly into the middle of next week. But they just say, no, let's not worry about that. Come on, that's meekness. You can always tell a great man by the meekness about it. I still remember, he's gone to be with the Lord now, Dr. Paul Reese, years ago as pastor of First Covenant Church in Minneapolis. And here I was, a little peon, going to Bible school, walking down the hallway one day, and he stepped out of his office, and he saw me, and he said, hello there. And he, he said, I, I said, you don't have to tell me who you are. You're Dr. Reese, aren't you? He said, yes. He said, what's your name? And I told him. He said, are you studying for the ministry? I, I told him I was going to school. I said, yes, sir, I am. I said, I'm in my second year. And he said, are you interested? Would you like to see my study? I said, man, would I love to see you. He was a profound preacher. I've still got copies of many of his sermons in my office. I read them get blessed. This man who had a huge church, very busy man, put his arm around my shoulder, took me into the front office through his fake office where everybody came in for counseling and took me back into his inner sanctum. Now there he had a room just about, if this were the other corner of this room, that's just about the size of his study that had row upon row of books from the floor to the ceiling. And then way at the back of that, where no one could see it unless you went back there, was this huge semicircular desk covered with books and covered with papers and all little, little notches up above it for filing different studies that he was doing. And I thought to myself, you know, this man doesn't have to do this. I mean, who in the world am I? And after I came back out, he handed me a couple of his books and put his autograph in it and said, I just want you to know I'm trusting the Lord's going to be able to use you in the days ahead. Man, I went out and thought, isn't that marvelous? Somebody like that doesn't have to do anything. That, that's meekness. Humility. He had the strength to pass me up and never be like just a mosquito on his shoulder. God says he wants us to be gentle and he wants us to be meek. It's interesting how over and over the word of God says don't be picking favorites. It says don't take the people who are wealthy and coddle up to them and ignore the poor. Because if you do that, God says that's sin. He says be meek toward all men. There are some men that you wouldn't have to give the time of day to. They're the ones that need the time of day because no one else does it. I want to tell you something, it's difficult to do this many times when we're very, very busy and trying to get our schedule and trying to get our program done, but God wants us to be meek toward all men, taking time to let them know we love them. For we ourselves, here's his, here's his reason, he says, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived. He said the reason we should be meek with other people is just remember the whole from whence you were digging. Sometimes I almost get shaky inside when I start 
just sitting down and going back and remembering the neighborhood I came from, the house I came from, what my room used to be like. I had a room of my own, but our house certainly was nothing fancy at all. I was talking to a lady today, and she said that she was so stunned when she was dating her husband now, and he took her home to North Carolina, and she said he didn't tell me ahead of time before we got there that their bathroom was disconnected from the house. <laughs> he didn't tell me that they didn't have electricity or running water. He didn't tell me anything. She said, I walked in just totally stunned. I was from Winter Park. And when I realized where I came from and how wonderful the Lord has been to me, were it not for the grace of God, I would probably be in prison. And I have made so many mistakes in my lifetime. Paul's saying, don't forget that. Remember that that's the way we were at one time. And we needed people to come to us and encourage us. God's going to help you. God's going to give you the strength. He's going to give you the wisdom. You're going to, you're going to make it over this hump. How many of you like it when somebody comes around and encourages you? You enjoy that? If you can just think upon how you feel when others come around and tell you that they really appreciate you. You'll understand what Paul's talking about here. Scripture says we're to exhort. That means challenge. Come on, you can make it every day. And the reason for it is we've got to remember how good the Lord's been and how patient the Lord's been with us. How many of you know that if the Lord weren't extremely patient, you wouldn't be here tonight? How many times has he forgiven you? Now, Paul uses that as the basis of his argument. The reason we must be meek with other people, the reason we must be gentle with other people, is because they're coming through the same road that we had to come through, and we don't dare forget like David said, remember the hole from whence thou wast digged. Go back and remember what you were and what God's done in your life. Remember all the times he was patient with you. All the times he's forgiven you. All the times he's blessed you when you didn't deserve it. You see, it's the goodness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Some people say, why doesn't God beat them down? Why doesn't God do this? Why doesn't God do that? And I keep saying, but the Bible says it's the goodness of the Lord that leads to repentance. When the Lord is good to us and we don't deserve it, us, we say, Lord, I don't understand your love and your mercy, but I just thank you for it. And, oh, God, thank you for forgiving me. And the Lord says, that's the way I want you to be. When they deserve everything else, be meek and gentle and kind and encouraging and understanding to them. He says, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. Actually, the Greek says mindless. Ever done things you think, where was my mind when I did that? He says, we were mindless, disobedient, deceived. Have you ever been deceived? Have you ever thought, well, this is the way it's going to be, and it's going to work out that way, and all of a sudden you think, oh, my goodness, I really missed it. And, you know, that's when God got his front loader and threw you off the cliff and said, I'm through with you. Someone this week said, you know, I was wrong. I was wrong about such and such this week. I, I, I took off in the wrong direction. But you know, they're still going on with the Lord because the Lord forgives. His mercies are new every morning. Missed it that time, Lord. By your grace, I won't do it the next time. Serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That word serving there is actually infers being a slave to these things. Now, this is interesting. And Paul said that this is the way he was, but in another place he said, concerning the law, I was what? Blameless. 
But he must have been talking about before he was blameless, he was these other things. He said, I was a slave to divers' lusts. That means all kinds of lusts. How do you know if you're a slave to them? If you can't control what you think. If you can't control what you want to see. If you can't control what you want to hear, then you're a slave to divers' lusts. And that's why we need to renew our minds so that we don't allow these things to be in our mind. I know sometimes when I'm talking, or walking, I can, all of a sudden, a thought will flood my mind. I think, my goodness, where'd that thing come from? In the name of Jesus, I won't have that thought. And I say, Lord, I don't know where the root of that thing is. Wherever it is, you show it to me, and we'll get it out in Jesus' name. We'll make sure it doesn't stay there. But you know, I could be walking and just absorb and soak and roll around and wallow in that kind of mess. Paul says we were like that, we're not that way anymore in divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice, moral inferiority, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, but after that, that's the way I was, but here was the turning point. After that, the kindness and love of God, not the judgment, Not the strictness, not the righteousness, not the the harshness of God. You know, I've found out one thing. It's It's not as advantageous to try to threaten people into Christ as it is to let them see the advantage of coming to a loving God. He said, after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, I'm so glad that Paul made it very clear that you and I can never be saved by our works. Not by works of righteousness. Another place he said that the greatest, most wonderful thing that you and I could ever do, if we were the greatest philanthropists in the world, if we were the most merciful people going out and caring for people day and night. He said that that's all we did and we did not do it in the name of Christ and depend on the righteousness of Christ, he says our righteousnesses, our best things, are like filthy, filthy, rotten rags. He said it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. The mercy of the Lord is our new every single morning. I don't know what I'd do sometimes if I didn't really believe that. I've many times said to myself, today is the first day of the rest of my life. Forgetting those things which are past, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I blew it yesterday, Lord, but by your grace, I'm going to do better today. Not by works, not because I'm trying to get saved by my good works. That's impossible. But because of God's mercy and grace, we desire to be pleasing to Him. When a young lady tries her best to keep her house neat and prepare her meals nicely to please her husband, it's not to get him to be her husband. It's to please him because he is her husband. Which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What did he shed on us? His mercy. Love is grace is mercy. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I want you to know that there is no grace, there is no mercy, there is no love that comes from God outside of Jesus Christ. That's why the scripture says that we're to abide in him. He is our life. He is our strength. He is our 
everything. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you, Jesus said. So it's in Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his, what? His grace. What's justified? Justified means just as if I had never sinned. For God, not because we deserve it, but by a moral judgment, Christ paid our penalty. God has every right morally and justifiably to erase all the charges against us. You're supposed to die, Joe Webb, because of your sin. Jesus says, I'll take his sins upon myself. Jesus did not sin. He could take our sins upon him. And he says, I'll die for those sins. He died on the cross for our sins. So when God looks at us now, he says, I, all my righteousness and all my justice is satisfied through Christ dying on the cross. So now I can forgive you righteously and justly because of what Jesus Christ has provided for you. It's not as though God's handing out a freebie. Christ paid the price for it. Being justified by his grace, unmerited favor. The ability or the power of God to help us to know and to do his will. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What's an heir? The descendant, someone who receives an, an inheritance. Now, when somebody receives an inheritance, what is a prerequisite before there can be an inheritance? That's right. Somebody has to die. Who died? That's right. Now, you see, our Lord was very, very wise. One of the greatest tragedies today is you and I can write out a will and think it's ironclad, and as soon as we die, the attorneys will get a hold of it, and they'll twist and turn that thing, and they'll end up getting everything, and you won't get anything. So Jesus said, no, that's not going to happen. He came back and became the administrator of his own will. He says, I am dying to pay for the eternal life for my children. He came back and says, now I'll oversee and make sure that it's taken care of. None of these attorneys are going to get a hold of this. Praise God. He ever liveth to make intercession for us, the scripture says. And he has said, we inherit eternal life. Eternal life was given to us through the death of Christ. We inherited it as sons of God, heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to what? Maintain what? that they maintain good works. Oh, is that so we can get to heaven? No. It's to show other people the difference between us and them because of Jesus Christ. That other men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Tell them to maintain good works. So other people come around and say, why are you so different? I had a man tell me the other day, working for one of the government offices, he said that, he did a job in an hour and a half. It was supposed to take three hours and 15 minutes. And the union people came around and got all upset with him. Why are you doing this? You're messing us up royally. Now just slow down. Because I can't slow down. If I'm getting paid so much an hour, I'm going to use my abilities the best I can to do what I can do in an hour and a half. And in an hour and a half, I did what it was supposed to be. You say it's supposed to take three hours and 15 minutes. He said, that's why we're in trouble today. He said, that's ridiculous to say that takes three hours and 15 minutes when I did it an hour and a half and I didn't even sweat. I didn't even break out in perspiration. It was easy. But the men around him are saying, slow down. You're making us look bad. All the apostles says that you and I are to be constantly maintaining good works 
These things are good and profitable unto men. Good how? First of all, it challenges them. Secondly, it causes them to wonder why you're so different. You can have a testimony in the community just because of that. I want to tell you something. There are a lot of Christians today that go to work, and I've actually had employers say to me, I wish I had never hired a Christian. They loaf, they get on the phone, they make long-distance calls and charge it to us. They take things home with them, and they call themselves a Christian, and they're saying praise the Lord all day and trying to witness people to come to their church and get saved. He says, I would just as soon not have Christians working for me. I thought, what a horrible testimony. They're not maintaining good works. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. We'll try to stop on this verse. Foolish questions and genealogies. The Gentiles that had come into the church had come from a background back then where they made up long lists of gods and would begin to make up stories that there were gods in their genealogy. In their family line, there were gods way, way, way back, and so they had royal blood in them, divine blood in them. And of course, the Jews always tried to go back and say that they were of Abraham or they were of David or something like this. And Paul says, Titus, just tell them to stop that kind of thing. He says, they're unprofitable and vain. I want to tell you something. I don't care if you belong to, if you're the part of the president's family, in God's sight, it makes no difference whatsoever. The ground at the foot of the cross is absolutely level. If you're a multi-billionaire standing next to a man who has just come off the street, if both of you accepted Christ, there's not one whit of difference between the two of you. There's no difference, Paul says, whether you're Gentile, Jew, Greek, Scythian, bond, free, slave, master, no difference whatsoever. All are one in Jesus Christ. He says, so forget about all these genealogies. I know of a young man years ago in Minnesota whose father was very influential as a county official. Everywhere this young fellow would go, he would always, when you'd ask him his name, he'd say, my dad is the such and such of this county. And, you know, he would wait like, now what do you think of me, you know? Well, my dad even did this and this in this county. And he's like, aren't you impressed yet? I mean, that's my dad. I felt so badly for this poor fellow because he went away to college, to a Christian college, and it was several thousand miles away. And when he got there, he started telling everybody who his dad was. And he's a big deal. I couldn't care less. Emotionally, that fellow had a nervous breakdown, had to come home. He could not live with the fact that people said, big deal, couldn't care less who your dad is. I don't care if he's president of the United States. Look, just be one of us or forget it. But you don't understand, my dad has power, my dad has authority, my dad can do this. We couldn't care less. He couldn't live with that. Last I heard, he was out on the West Coast driving a taxi cab, telling everybody who his dad was. God's Word says that we're to humble ourselves in the sight of God. Remember in James, he said, when somebody comes in with costly apparel, don't walk back and pamper them and say, oh, you come right up here in the front row. And those that are poor say, you go back there and sit there, way over there in a the corner in the dark where nobody sees you because you've got old clothes on. You do that, he said, that's sin. That's partiality and that's sin. He said, when you come into a room, don't come right up in the very front seat and sit down because later on, somebody more important than you might come in and they'll have to come and ask you to go to the back and then you're going to be humiliated. I was in a meeting just recently, and I saw this lady walk in, and she was dressed fit to kill. She came prancing in and came way up to the front and sat down right up in the very front, and she was just looking all around to make sure everybody had seen her. And it wasn't very long. Somebody came and tapped her on the shoulder, and she was 
red in the face and all embarrassed. And she got up and she had to go clear back because those seats were reserved for someone else. And I thought, you know, just exactly what James is talking about here. Doesn't make any difference who your mom and dad are, who your grandma and grandpa are. The question is, who are you? God couldn't care less who your family is. He's saying, who are you? I want to know you, and I want you to know me, and I want you to manifest my spirit in your life every day. Good things for God's people to uphold biblical principles when relating to others. We've been in Titus, the third chapter. We got down to verse 10 last week. And we started in Titus, the third chapter, in the first verse. Let me read those first nine verses for you, and then we'll go right into verse 10. And put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Now remember, in this chapter, he talks about good works three different times. To speak evil of no man, be no brawler, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometime foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Now tonight we want to start on verse 10. There's not a whole lot here. It doesn't look like there's a whole lot here, but there's some important information concerning correction within a church. And he says in verse 10, A man that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject. One thing that has almost totally eluded the New Testament church today is church discipline. And as I've said before, the reason for this is because people are now members of a denomination. It's not a relationship of a shepherd to a sheep, a sheep to a shepherd. It's a membership in a denomination. And if I ever get tired of this denomination, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just pick up my membership and I'll go over and join another denomination. And if that abomination doesn't please me, I'll go to another abomination. And I'll just keep shifting around until I get where they say what I want to hear. Consequently, it's very, very difficult for discipline in the churches today. Because people think, well... I don't have to listen to that preacher. I can go over here. It has nothing to do with what does the Word of God say, but rather has to do, I will do my own thing, and if they don't tell me what I want to hear, I'll go where I can hear what I want to hear. Now, how many of you know that the very foundation of that is rebellion? Very difficult to talk to anyone in the typical church today and explain to them anything about a sheep-shepherd relationship. I might as well be talking to that steel post. I've watched their eyes as I've explained to them the difference between church membership and the shepherd-sheep relationship. And it's just like it's going right over their head. They can't even comprehend it because all they've ever known is church membership, denomination, support the, the program that we've got right here. Well, so what if this pastor leaves? We'll, we'll hire another one that'll come in and take his place, and if that one doesn't work, we'll get rid of him, we'll hire another one. 
And so the whole concept that I find in the New Testament, the sheep and shepherd relationship, is completely gone. So when we talk about these things, this will only function where the body is in order and where the church is functioning like a New Testament church. So when we talk about principles of discipline, you have to realize that most churches today could no more make this work than fly. And I say we need a shepherd unless we are a shepherd. God calls people into places of responsibility, and he says that when they come into a place of responsibility, God holds them responsible for the souls of those that are under them. Well, let me just say, that's why I don't go out looking for other people's sheep. I don't want the responsibility of somebody else's sheep. The ones that God gives to me are going to be enough for me. He must know how much I can handle, and that's what he gives me. When we talk about discipline here tonight and talk about heretics in the church, we're going to have to understand that it's going to happen in the church in the days ahead. And the only way it's going to be able to function in a scriptural way is if spiritual authority says, here is a problem in the church and this is the way we're going to deal with it and we have a sheep-shepherd relationship. I've said time and time again, the one thing that's hard to find today is people who will trust leadership. You understand what I'm saying? You know, some of you have been around for a long, long time. You know that I'm not always right. I'm not always going to do the exact right thing, and I'm going to have to answer to God for that someday, but know that I want to do the right thing above everything else. A man that is a heretic, that's the only place in the New Testament where that word heretic is used. Heretikos. I look for different definitions. It says it's an opinionated person who holds and seeks to spread his ideas person with very strong personal opinions that comes in to sow discord within a body and he's not going to let go of his opinion and this is the way it's going to be and I'm going to hang on to this with my teeth and I'm not going to let go no matter what you say. A very opinionated person. Possessor of a very strong, definite, almost rebellious will. One who holds an opinion apart from Scripture. His opinion is not consistent with the Scripture but you cannot convince him of that. And I cannot tell you how many opinions I've had sent to me in the mail down through the years that I've been involved in web ministry. Opinion after opinion after opinion. And you can send tapes back to them and write letters back to them, but you're not going to change them. They're opinionated. You can even give them scripture verses that very clearly say otherwise, but you're not going to change them. They're very opinionated. Another definition was pernicious. Another one said it's not just an unsound opinion, but they have an unsound life. They promote discord within the church. I've known people who have been absolutely strong in their opinion and come in and try to hoist over on the congregation their opinion on certain things, and their own homes are a total disaster. And I keep saying to them, go home and bring your home in order. Go home and make it work in your home, and then come back and let's talk. Because no matter what you say, if your home is in total disarray, the Bible says, first of all, you aren't even qualified to be listened to or qualified to be in leadership. Now, is that my doctrine or is that what the Scripture says? 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, tells us the reason for heresy in the church. Verse 16, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom neither the churches of God. Now, in this I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. He says you've got little split groups, little cliques in the church. For there must be also heresies among you, 
that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Uh, the Phillips translation says it this way, there must be heresies among you that they which are approved or your favorite leaders wouldn't be so conspicuous. He says that there's times when God allows this to happen in a church for leadership to rise up, true leadership in a church. Many times there's no definite line as to who's leadership in a church. And by the way, leadership rises automatically. It doesn't have to struggle and strain and kick to get there. They just God just raises them up in a body. When people see a consistency, when people see a steadfastness, people see a faithfulness to the Word of God and the doctrine of the, of the Scriptures, people begin to look to those people for leadership and direction and information. And Paul says here in 1 Corinthians that there's times when this is going to happen strictly to cause the church to become aware of who leadership really is in the church. Now, whenever there is divisions because of heresy within the church, you'll suddenly find out who's the goats and who's the sheep. Whenever there's a struggle within the church, you'll soon find out who is genuine leadership because they will support the ministry that has been called to that particular place. And the goats will be the one who will be out there causing division and strife and stress within the church. And then the true sheep look around and say, oh, now I see where real leadership is. That wasn't... Now, in the past, we have had, in the years of my ministry, we've had people who have, while we were trying to build, have tried to tear apart, had to try to cause dissension. We had weekly meetings that brought me to the place where I said, Lord, either you straighten it out, or I'm through. You have it. No wonder anymore. The Lord gave a word to me and said, I will clear it out. I will clear it out. And within two weeks, it was cleared out. But when that happened, there were many that said, oh, now I see who true leadership is. Now, this is going to happen again in the days ahead. There's no way around it because Paul said it's going to happen. Heresy is going to come into the church. People that are very opinionated are going to come, and they'll come and whisper behind the, the leadership's back. They'll come and say things about the leadership. But you're going to have heretics. And that's the time when we need to rally together as a body and say we're going to do God's work in God's way around here. And when it happens... Don't say, oh my goodness, everything's falling apart. And look around and say, where's genuine leadership here? Where is genuine leadership in the body? That's what he says here. That's what happens when divisions come. Heresies come into the church. It's just to bring up, raise up genuine, true leadership within the body. Galatians 5.20, verse 19, actually starts with, The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, what? Heresies. Isn't that a nice list to be in? Paul says that they that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I was talking to a pastor the other day, and years and years ago, when I first moved to Florida, I was helping churches finance building programs with church bonds. And I was directing this one bond program. When it got all through, we had completely had a completely successful bond program. It was time for the company, my company, to get a, a check from the church. And that night, the treasurer knew that I was supposed to receive the check for my services, and he wasn't there. I asked the pastor where he was. He said, well, no telling, really. And I said, well, can we find out? Found out he had gotten in his plane and went flying that night. Was not going to come in. 
Finally, the pastor got a hold of me and said, I want you here, and I want you here with a checkbook, and I want you here right away. Well, he waited and waited and waited, and we just sat and waited for him. And he finally came. He said, I'm not going to do this until such a pastor says, you are going to do that now. I was talking to the pastor a little bit later on. He said, brother, brother, brother. I said, you know, I surely do not envy you to have a man of that kind of a disposition in your church. He said, well, I should have known better before I put him into leadership. He's been divorced five times already. I talked to him the other day. He said, you cannot imagine what that man has done in the years since that bond program. He said, he's not in my church anymore, but everywhere he's gone, he's just caused explosions everywhere he's gone. And I've had other pastors call me and say, oh my goodness. He said, then I found out a pastor, now here's what I'm talking about, going from church to church. He said, I found out the church that he came from was another church of that denomination. And the pastor came to the place and said, I will have nothing more to do with you. You will never be in leadership in this church again. I'm through with you. He said, then the man left and came over to my church. And I said, isn't it amazing that you're the pastor that he had before didn't call you to warn you about this man? You see, once they get into that mentality, mindset, everywhere they go, they're ready to tear things apart. I remember one of the first things, when we first moved into this building, a man came one Sunday morning, and he met me at the door. Ed will remember this. He met me at the door, and he said, I'd like to sit down with you and the books, and your treasure with the books. I said, oh, really? Uh, why is it? And I'm talking about the first Sunday he was here. I want to go through the books with you and... I said, why is that? He said, well, I want to see what you're doing and I want to give you some instructions, show you how to do it better. I said, well, as far as I know, everything's going fine. I don't think that's necessary. Well, he said, I really would like to have it. And it wasn't two weeks later he came and told me, he said, now I want you to know that I'm available to be counseling to you because I know a pastor doesn't have a pastor, but he says, I'm available for counsel with you. I thought, where did this guy get off the bus? If I need counseling, I've got plenty of men I trust in my own body, and I've got other pastors. I go, where did this guy get off? I don't even know him from Adam. Well, there's a mindset about them because it's the work of the flesh. There's pride involved there. When one is a heretic, it goes around causing divisions within the church. Now, don't think it isn't going to happen in the church. Look at Second Peter, the second chapter. Not only did... Paul say it, talk about it, but Peter also. Second Peter, the second chapter, in the first verse. But there were false prophets. He's talking about in the Old Testament times now. There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. How many of you know that there are heretics that have come into many of the major denominations today? Just recently, another priest or bishop, one of the two, married a couple of lesbians within the church and now trying to ordain lesbians and homosexuals into the ministry in these major denominations. They get into big rows and big ruckuses, and they try to vote them down. They do get, in most of them, they're voting them down, but at the same time, they're not able to get rid of those people that have already been put in. And how many of you know when the Arab camel gets his nose in the tent, before long, the whole camel's going to be in the tent? They're moving in, and they're getting stronger and stronger, and they're... 
How many of you know you can't listen to many talk shows today, but what is just, the people are just being bombarded with this, accept it, accept it, accept it, it's a natural thing. And they're going to start coming into churches, mark it down, they'll be coming into churches before long and trying to ferret their way into the body and then begin to cause waves and if nothing else, stand up and make demonstrations right within the congregation. It's going to be happening. A man that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, rejects. Now that word admonition is remonstrance or reproof. And it doesn't mean you just come up and say shut up. It's talking about when you find someone who comes in with a heretic or a false doctrine or trying to cause stir up problems like that, you're to sit down with them and earnestly talk through what they're saying in comparison to what the scripture says. Detailed, lovingly sit down with them and say, now this is what the word says and this is where you're in error and this is where you need to change and this is why we won't accept this teaching in this church. He says, you're to patiently do this twice. And after being told twice, reject them. That word is in the imperative in the Greek. It's talking about every man of this kind, every woman of this kind, you're to reject them. Now, let's, uh, let's talk about that word reject. There's several definitions that I found in this also from different commentators. It means to disdain to be bothered with him. In other words, avoid him from then on. Don't waste your time with him. Don't talk to him anymore about that subject. In other words, I have nothing more to say to you about it. This is where we stand, and that's the way it is. It does not mean that you're to threaten him. It does not mean you're to be cruel to him, to be mean to him, anything like that. But just avoid him. Excuse him from any serious consideration from then on, another one said. By rejecting him, you don't give him the time of day. You don't have time to waste with him anymore. You ever found people like that? You try to talk to them, you try to talk to them, you try to talk to them, and you find out after a while they don't want help, they just want to take up your time. And you just got to back off and let them go, Paul said. Don't let them have any responsible position in the church. Some years ago we had a person that was creating problems within the church and teaching a Sunday school class, and I heard little waves from time to time, and I thought, well, it surely isn't. And so one Sunday I just unannounced, walked in and sat in the class and was devastated with some of the things that were being said. And then I had to say, this will not be taught in this church. And the old ship rocked and rolled and buckled and snapped and everything else. And I found out later his own family didn't even know what he had been saying and teaching in the church. But it said, it won't happen. It's not going to happen in this church. And that's when I... Right after that, the Lord said, I'll clear it out. In two weeks, he'll clear it out. Another commentator said, this type of person that causes heretical teaching in the church usually wants to stay within the church as long as they possibly can. To make as much of an influence as they possibly can, to try to draw as many people to themselves as they possibly can. And their heresy, when the church finally, when the pastor or the leadership says, don't listen to this person's teaching anymore, it's heresy. If the flock or sheep, they will do that so that that person will not feel like we hate them, but just have nothing to do with them until they change that teaching. They love attention. Paul said there in Corinthians, they try to draw followers after themselves whenever that comes in. Look at Matthew, the 18th chapter. It talks about discipline within the church. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. 
But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he shall neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. You know, people don't even like to hear that today. They think, boy, that's legalistic. No, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ taught. We have to understand that this is called church discipline. First, if one person goes to them, if they won't listen, then two people go, and so there's a witness to everything that's said. Let me tell you, you have to do, you better do it right nowadays because there have been denominations where pastors have not had wisdom and they have publicly gotten up and announced there's such and such a person living in sin in this body and they will not do it. And he wrote letters, I remember this one wrote letters to the other pastors in his own denomination so this particular woman could not go from church to church said, don't accept her in our fellowship here in the area. She filed suit against the church, was able to get all the records from the church, found the letters, took him to court, and they fined the pastor and the church thousands and thousands of dollars because he publicly embarrassed her and humiliated this person. There's a certain way you can do it. See, not only is the church making it difficult, now the government is passing laws to make it even more difficult for you to have church discipline today. One of the things God hates is a person who causes division, he said. Let's go back to verse 11. Knowing that he that is such is subverted. And he's talking about the condition of this heretic. He that is such is subverted. Now, again, the definitions I found, he, that person is, another word, is perverted. Their mind is distorted. They have turned out from true doctrine, and the Bible says they turn away from the truth of God's word to doctrines of demons. They have changed. Another one it says they are changed for the worse from being what they know they ought to be to being something totally different. Another one said to be subverted means to be incorrigible and incurable in most cases. They've come to the place where you can't turn them around. They're a heretic now. They have forsaken the way. Another one said it means they have been cast off the foundation. They are no longer standing on the foundation of God's word as they ought to. Scripture says, knowing that he that is such is subverted and what? And sinneth. Hopertanii. And that means that he is in total disobedience to God because of his heretical ways. And then it goes on to a very interesting phrase here, being condemned of himself. A heretic knows that he's not doing what he's supposed to do. First of all, because he has been admonished by those who are in spiritual leadership. Secondly, because the Spirit of God witnesses to him that he knows he's not right, but he is not about to change. He's in rebellion. And so he condemns himself. What is condemnation? This is condemnation, that light has come in. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Don't tell me anything else. I'm going to do my own thing. He's sinning against his own conscience. He's rejecting spiritual authority. And he finds no justification for that anywhere in the Scripture. Then let's jump down to verse 14, because the other two are just talking about some people that Paul knew at that time. It says, And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. 
And let ours also learn to maintain good work for necessary uses. Now he's actually said let ours, he meant let our own. Let the Christians here learn how, not learn that doing good works is okay. He says let them learn how to do good works. Now that indicates to me that there are some Christians that really don't know how to do good works. Paul says they should learn how. They should go out and experience it by working with others, doing good works with others for other people. What is it they say? Try it. You'll like it. Go out and try to do some good works. Where it says for necessary uses, it means when necessities arise. When things come up and it's necessary for good works to be done, there should be those in the body that are ready to be able to do those good works. But it says that we should be prepared to learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. That the religion, in other words, won't be unproductive, barren and worthless. What is good, pure religion and undefiled? To visit the fatherless and the widows, to meet their needs, to take care of their needs. Some of you remember some years ago when a widow in the church had need of a new roof and the Agape roofing crew went out and completely re-roofed the house. And I mean, we had men and, and women on the roof and we had women and men running around the house and had children out there picking up shingles and putting things away and it was an exciting time. See, God's people do those things. We're to maintain good works. The only thing about the good works to maintain is we must do it with the right motive. Do it as unto the Lord. We must do it with the right standard. And it's the same thing, doing it as unto the Lord. Not is it good enough to get by with, but is it good enough to glorify Jesus Christ. And the third thing is to have the right influence. When it's done, people will be able to say, I see something in that person that makes me want to be a Christian. Good Things for God People says that we must be obedient and consistent with what the Scriptures teach concerning a heretic within the church. And then he goes on to say, be sure that you maintain good works. When necessity arises, that you're ready to be able to do good work and do it with the right motive. 